My friend, welcome to Talking During Movies, the podcast where we take a movie that you have picked and we take key moments and quotes from the film to drive our two-hour conversation. Before we kick off, uh, I want to read a couple notes. Uh, every once in a while, you know, I get some special guests like you on. I do a little, uh, I do a little research. Uh, and so some of the fun things that I found out uh, about you that, that I think uh, uh, our listeners might enjoy. Uh, Water Polo Monthly calls you Sexiest Man Alive. Uh, Abs Weekly said, this is the eight pack we should all deserve to have if we ate right and worked out. And um, Newport Beach Weekly, father of the year. I mean, you get all these accolades, sir. All of these wonderful things. Captain Handsome, you're, you're, you're a medal winner. You're an Olympian. You have what? You have three kids now, right? Three? Grace. Grace. You're still, you know, teaching. When you're not teaching water polo, you're showing up on Instagram and you're doing workouts for people. You're like, hey, let's do this. What, what is it like for you uh, as an Olympian, as a husband, as a father, and not necessarily importance of order, obviously, but what is it like, uh, and then all the young people that look up to you, what is that, uh, what's that feeling like? What's funny is it's, it really comes natural for me. Uh, I think I had the most pressure when I was younger, <laughs> honestly, just trying to be a good role model for my two younger sisters. Okay. And I think since then, if I could lead up, to live up to their standards of someone who saw me at home, at school, at practice, you know, that all, if we had the pressures of, you know, social media per se before social media, yeah. um, I didn't drink in high school, you know, one, because I was focused on my athletics and my academics, but two, because I want to be a good role model for my younger siblings. Um, you know, I tried to listen to coaches and teachers because I knew they're going to have the same coaches and teachers in their career and wanted to set a good example for them leading up. So when I went into athletics, it was just a easy transition. And I also was able to pursue two dreams. I was called, you know, consider myself like an artistic athlete. Or, uh, so I was able to study art and then go on to teach art at a private high school, Sage Hill in Orange County, where I was also the dean of students. So that, again, was the same thing, you know, just leading by example, um, which kind of came natural to me. It's, it's interesting that it comes natural to you. Uh, I think some people obviously struggle with it. Uh, I think others, you know, embrace it. And then, uh, you know, like yourself, and it just comes natural. And then others try to play the game, right? Of, hey, I'll be a good role model here, but I'm not going to be a good role model over here. So I'll be a good athlete, and I'm going to show you how to work hard, how to do this. But if I get a DUI, I'm not your role model. 
right? They try to play both games. And you're one of the pure forms that just said, no, 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 no. I'm a role model. And I think it's maybe your inspiration of your, of your younger sisters. Would that be fair? Very fair. Okay. Nice. Now we picked cool runnings. Yeah. I wish people just both smile at the same time. Because with everything that's been going on with COVID, with race relations, I was like, you know what? I'm going to try to pick a movie that's just going to bring me back to a, a happy place. Good. And it instantly does. Obviously, there's still some things that trigger some other issues we'll talk about throughout the film, but I'll explain why I picked Cool Runnings in more detail when we get to it. Awesome, awesome. We'll cue it up, please. And uh, when you hit play, I'll hit play and we'll get it rocking and rolling. So, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. You have some, you know, you've got some roots in Jamaica, that being your father. And uh, as we're getting this going, can you share that story about him tying a rope around a log and then around his waist so he could go get food oh. and then come up? Why that? I mean, it's, it's, it's a magical story. It really is. It's funny. Like, we'll watch, you know, you'll watch, as we watch this film, you'll see it's not the exact depiction of the tourist, um, you know, resort island that you always see the pristine white beaches and you know big resorts it's really hum a humble country mm -hmm. um you know we have some phenomenal people coming out of it some of the world's biggest superstars are through saint bolt and bob marley but it's made up of people who live up in the mountains living off the land people who live live out of the ocean and um spearfish and and you know sell things in market that's where my dad was so at an early age you know elementary school age he lived up on the hill, less than a mile, mile from the ocean, and he would go down and watch this old man go spearfishing, and that's what he wanted to do, only he didn't know how to swim. So he found a big piece of bamboo that's, you know, the hollowed out section, tied a rope to, and he would go out and made his own little homemade spear gun, and he'd kind of kick out until he could barely touch, drop down underwater, try to spear a fish, pull himself back up on the rope, and that's how he got his, his career started. Probably at age, you know, six, seven years old, became a spear fisherman for the next 30 years. But it's, it's and I, for people that don't live near an ocean or haven't been near an ocean, I don't, you don't understand, A, the power of the ocean, the intimidating factor of the ocean. And at six, seven years old to be like, I'm still gonna, oh, I don't know how to swim. I'm still gonna go out into the biggest, craziest, water in the world that can take me anywhere on planet earth pretty much i'm going to go out there so that i can get some food so that i can eat and and sell things and you know all the uh, that how much of that did you know growing up or how much of that was told to you later so i had a i navigated between two worlds okay. my mom is literally from south bay Los Angeles, Manhattan Beach. Um, and my dad is from not only Jamaica, but the countryside of Jamaica. So at that same time, he moved out of his home. Okay. Um, we lit his house, we stole the land today, five acres of land, you know, a little hillside with the stream running through it. But he moved down and paid rent to this old man after he could provide fish to him. And, you know, he was close to his parents, but he didn't go to school. He became a full-time spear fisherman at that age. And I knew that probably from before I was even that age. Um, but at the same time, he, he's the one who probably stressed education to me more than anybody else in my entire life because he understood the importance of 
formal education living in the United States. Um, you know, you can't make a living going spearfishing in, in Newport. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. All right, you queued up? Um, actually, I was waiting on logging for my wife. Cause I right. think my kids locked me out of Disney Plus. <laughs> I know the kids are like, Dad, this is ours, not yeah. yours. So no. what I'm actually going to go back into just go the link that you sent me. Perfect. No worries. Yeah, it's a little uh, YouTube link. The, the screen's small. I got it. There we go. Let's hit that play button. We're golden. I with volume control. Just, just put it on mute. Just put the, the YouTube thing on mute. Oh, got you. It won't, it won't turn you on mute. Um, <clears throat> so background real quick. We have been friends for goodness. 20 years. Give me, give me a second here. That's right. some technical difficulties with me. Got it. Okay. There we go. So we've been friends for damn near 20 years. If you think about the, uh, the good old Lakeshore days. Two decades. Yeah. Two decades. You look back two decades of where we were as, as young men and you look to where we are now. We're both fathers. We're both married. We're both, you know, we both own homes. <laughs> Did you foresee having kids and a wife and, and all that you've accomplished? Or 20 years ago, was it just more like, I just, just the next day, let's just get to the next day. Both. So oh. I, that was my long-term. Mm -hmm. I knew in my head that I wanted to accomplish my goals of being an educator. So professionally teaching and giving back to kids since an early, early age. Okay. Um, my, my mom had been a teacher and I, that's one of my role models. Um, and then, you know, watching the Bulls on TV, at one point I wanted to be a professional basketball player. Then it morphed, I wanted to be a professional bodyboarder. Um, neither of those things worked out, but when I got introduced to water polo and felt as if I had some potential, you know, I knew that that's what my dream was going to be for, you know, the next well at the thought time i thought it was like the next six years and it ended up being a 10-year process to make that first olympic team but yeah i know i knew early on what my long-term goals were and i also realized that every single day i had to take a step make progress every single day towards it and that's i think going back to that you know going back to being a role model was like i didn't get overwhelmed by long-term goals i just knew that i could control the next 24, 24 hours of each day so sure. i woke up early talking about 4.15, you know, going to practices, um, you know, juggling multiple things. And what's crazy is, you know, you and I met playing basketball. Yeah. That was, that was sometimes what would happen. We had a partnership where we would lift weights at Lakeshore Towers. The team would leave, and then I would stay after and, and play basketball. So <laughs> I was always just doing extra. And I think that kind of goes back to, like, prioritizing things in life. You know, it's my best friend, Omar, who's, you know, as well, who's just something Dude. that's not right in his head. The man went to Harvard Med School, graduated top of his class, and coached water polo at MIT, the most successful seasons in history, while commuting back to California on the weekends for national team practices um, to train for the Olympics, deferred for a year, and then actually made his Olympic team. But when you have a role model like that, like, it's hard not to be successful. So as much as I thought I was doing it for you know, be a role model myself, I had phenomenal support um, around me and role models around me as well. You have an interesting story about how you found water polo and, um, and then how you got into it. Can you share that, please? 
<laughs> I don't even want to say luck. It was just an accident. Yeah. Um, got off a school bus and heard whistles and kept hearing whistles. So what? I was excited to go walk into the gym, see some basketball when the gym was empty and follow the whistles out to a pool. And I saw a cool looking sport. Didn't know what it was called. Didn't know people weren't touching the, the ball, the bottom, because I thought they were just jumping off the ground. Had no idea that they were wearing Speedos. And had I known any of those things, I probably would have never pursued it. But the <laughs> next day I went to my, sc my school that I was attending at the time and started asking friends what other sport was going on in the fall. And they didn't know. So actually it wasn't until my second period teacher um, called me up and was like, hey, I overheard you talking about what I think is water polo. I think you'd be great at it. You, you know, you wrote in your diary that you want to be a professional bodyboarder. Um, you're on the basketball team. You're athletic. You know, you should give it a try. So that day I convinced two of my buddies to go and try out with me. One of them was seven one. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, our center from the team, another guard on our team. And you should have seen the coach's eyes just light up because it was already like halfway through the season. You know, like just light up when they saw these three athletic looking and looking <laughs> is the key word. Guys walk on the deck. Justin, seven footer, lasted about 30 minutes till we went from the shallow end to the deep end, realized he couldn't egg beat her and got out and walked home or walked back um, dripping wet in his basketball shorts. Wow. I had never swam that far in my life before. I'd been in the ocean, but I'd never done like structured swim lessons and flip turns and all that craziness at that point. So I barely made it through the warm up. Um, but then once I did, you know, I did this weird like vertical breaststroke kick to, to stay up. And if I was up, I'd block a shot. And if I was down, <laughs> I was trying, just trying to breathe. So it was, yeah, complete accident. But what drew me to it was how challenging it was. I'd been fairly successful as a land-based athlete. I was already offered college scholarships for basketball at that point. Um, but I liked that it was something so new and hard and challenging. It's, you know, it, it's funny. I used to think, because in my last year of college, I had a friend who was on the, um, the secondary team for the uh, L.A. soccer team. He, and uh, he was on their practice squad and he was a professional. He just wasn't uh, playing unless someone got hurt. And I went and did a practice with him. And I'd never run so much in my life. I threw up. And I used to think that was tough. And then I met you. And then we, I remember us sitting down with Alex Holmes and some other guys. And you were talking about what you guys do for water polo practice. And then I was, and then I was just, it was almost like in my mind, you know, using today's terminology, it was like, hey, soccer, hold my beer. Water polo's going <laughs> to go out and kick your ass. ESPN, some, during our quad, the quad is the four-year cycling to the Olympics, did an article talking about that. Like most, one of the most underrated sports, like one of the most physically demanding sports is water polo. Um, and I don't think I'll ever get the notoriety of, you know, mainstream sports. But as far as what goes into it physically, there are very few things that I've done. Like, you know, talking about, I had, you know, friends on the college soccer team that was faster than them on land, you know, running, mm -hmm. not a problem. When I played basketball, um, I'll tell you my basketball stories. Yeah, yeah. Later, but you know, I had guards getting mad at me because I was quote unquote making them look bad because I was doing 12, 12 suicide runs in a minute, you know, lengthwise. Um, you know, just the conditioning from water polo was nothing that, compared to anything else I'd done off for land-based sports up until that point. I've never done hockey though. Cause I see people doing hockey and having to do like line changes every 60 seconds. Cause they just go all out. 
yeah. that's that'll be my something I pick up in my fifty in my fifties is a new challenge. <laughs> the senior league, the hockey senior yeah, league. Exactly. <laughs> you uh now the one thing about water polo that I've heard from other friends playing water polo, um, Tim Kennedy's daughter plays water polo, and I'd asked her this question. Underneath the water, it's a dirty, mean sport. It's not for the faint of heart. Is that accurate? Yes and no. Okay. Um, she's, she's in Stone High School, correct? Yes. And I think that might be the most vicious level is high, the high school level for more, and this is my theory for multiple reasons, especially on the guy's side. Think about where you were mentally in high mm -hmm. school, where you, oh, it's, oh, I saw this in the movie, I, he kicked off from where he punched him, he cried, shot, whatever. But very few people in high school really been punched hard in the face or punched hard in the region down below water, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and so they don't know what it really feels like. That's part one. Until I start happening to you more frequently, you're like, okay, I, maybe I don't want to actually do this to somebody else. It might look cool, but it actually hurts. So you don't want to hurt someone. That's part one. Part two, when you get to college, the consequences start getting a little more severe, right? There's more on the line. Um, referees are trained more to see, see brutalities and things like that. And you, you know, you could cost your team a national championship. And then when you get to the, the Olympic level, it's almost like the NBA where you have these huge rivalries, but at the same time, you also have this mutual respect. You okay. know exactly what you guys have gone through and it actually gets more physical, in my opinion, but less dirty. Makes sense. There are a couple teams, couple countries, I won't, won't name at this moment, that, you know, kind of take advantage of the rules. But for the most part, it's a lot more aggressive. But you know, NFL, for instance, right, there's rules in place to, you know, eliminate dirty play. But at the same time, if you have Ray Lewis coming to hit you with a clean shot, it's, it might be worse than something else. So it's a lot it's physical, <laughs> but it's not quite as dirty. Yeah, what do you want a free shot from? Do you want a cheap shot in the shoulder from Richard Sherman, or do you want a full-on run from, from Ray Lewis? So I, I only brought my brother-in-law a couple times, I think maybe two or three times into Lakeshore. He's an uh, introvert, doesn't talk as much. Um, so I don't know if you had any conversations with him, but he has, when he got drafted, he has an interesting story too. He, was a walk-on in, in college. He was on a track scholarship on the Team USA for track, ran hurdles, was nationally ranked, and junior year decided he wanted to play football. So he walked on the football team at UCLA. Two years later, he was in the NFL, um, made the practice wow. squad his first year, and ended up um, with the Ravens for two years, and then playing with the Broncos for four years and Lions for a minute. But his whole playing career told me that, like, probably the top, hard, top couple hardest shots he ever had as a special teams wide receiver was in practice his rookie year with Ray Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> well, remember, remember we played with Raymond Etheridge. Oh yeah. That's one of his Ray boys. Lewis. Yeah. That's yeah. one of his boys. I mean, there, yeah. And it, I would talk to Ray Ray about that old tin man. I'd be like, Hey man, he goes, why do you think I limp? <laughs> it is, it's a, the level. And I'd like your insight on this. Cause you, you know, you, you've talked about, high school to college to Olympics. My good friend, Chris Howard, was uh, the starting running back at Michigan. Last time they won a national championship, Chris was their running back. And he said at Michigan, he could hit every corner. He'd see the corner as a running back, he could hit the corner, just no problem. He goes, then he got to the NFL and he goes, for my eight or 10 years in the NFL, Jason, he goes, I never saw a corner. He goes, the best of the best in my division 
only 1% of them made it to the NFL, made it. And then of those 1%, only 1% made it on to the team. And of that, only 1% in that position made it to start. So it was no longer about how good he was at Michigan or how good that other player was at Temple or Harvard, anywhere else. Now it was, oh, this is just the best linebacker for that time period that exists on the field right now. And it was so different for him to adjust. How did you make those adjustments from high school for, to college? And then when you're in college playing water polo and doing stuff and then to the Olympics, how did those adjustments, how, did you, how do you attack those? Day by day, same thing. And it, the thing is too, is for guys, we kind of peak, we're kind of done growing, you know, by the time we're in college. Mm-hmm. size and strength pretty much so the adjustment to going to the national team wasn't much different physically it was just the tempo of the game um you know people aren't swimming that much faster they're not throwing the ball that much harder but the decision making skills everyone's playing things out in their head ahead of time where you know i kind of do you remember watching that one of those films when the remake of sherlock holmes yeah you walk in the room you, he replays he plays out like scenarios of what could happen like that's what i felt like i was like Right, like going ahead of the game, I was like, "Dude, everybody's got this damn skill." Like everyone's counting like, <laughs> like the Matrix or something. So you're playing mahjong, they're playing checkers. You're like, "Listen, guys, I got this." Okay. So I thought, but everyone was doing it at the next level. Like, and you know, you have returning Olympians that have already been doing it for four to eight years, um, and so it was picking their brain of just the smallest details. You know, um, there's a guy named Wolf Weigel, the coach at UC Santa Barbara now. He's from New York, Bronx schools, or whatever, the school of science of, in the Bronx, Bronx School of Science. Not a lot of water polo, especially in the 80s, you know, but he was so dedicated to make it that he was going to, you know, men's practices and games and competing with the New York Athletic Club when he was 14, 15 years old. So he ended up getting a scholarship to Stanford, ended up going to three Olympics. And you watch some of his drills that he has on YouTube of him doing stuff that looks like a human seal, right, bouncing a water polo ball on his nose, I can't barely even go on land, but in the water, you know, dedicated to doing headers like a soccer player does off a rebounder of a thousand times. So the leg strength, the core strength, you know, his forehead's turning red from a thousand hits of a, a water pole ball, but his balance, you know, he'll land the water and skull and kick the ball off his foot, you know, dozens of times back to his head, back to his foot. And no one's born being able to do those small details, but that was the focus, the tension and detail that he needed to get his body trained to be balanced better than anybody else who's going to be bigger or stronger than him. So I started watching, you know, people like that do things. So I started doing things like that. You know, I saw people doing those, you see like you know, that movie, the guardian um, and they're when they're doing um, um, that training for coast guards and he's holding a five gallon jug bucket. Five oh, yeah, gallon yeah, yeah. Bucket. Yeah, so, Oh, if he can do one, I can do two. Took me about five years, but I could do two <laughs> jugs about 90 pounds. Right. I, I just saw people doing things like I want to try to do that and it, if do it better if possible. And so I, all these small aspects of my game started to improve. Um, my swimming was horrible. I got faster. Um, you know, my I have really long arms. I have a seven foot wingspan. But my reaction time, you know, I wanted to be like Bruce Lee. So I started working on a lot of reaction drills and got really quick reaction drills. Um, so I, my game was became a lot more balanced. I, was, you know, I tell people, you know, maintain your strengths and focus on your weaknesses. 
Sure. Every day I was doing that and staying after practices, whether it's college practices. And when I first started training the national team, I was doing both. And then even when I was on the national team, I was doing extra things. So I was playing basketball, I was doing boxing. Um, you know, I was doing shadow boxing at the beach. I was just doing anything I possibly could during my downtime to hone my skills. You, um, you know, as we're watching, it's, it's interesting because cool runnings, there is this, for lack of a better term, there's this buildup of, of pressure, right? You know, and it, it's the pressure of we're going to, we're going to start this, this Jamaican bobsledding team. And, you know, we got John Candy, God rest his soul in this film. Um, but, you know, there's this, they've created an environment that they want to go excel in that hasn't been done before you and your wife are both very successful and you've got three kids. How do you balance your drive and your success with parenting and making sure your kids are going their own way? Part of it was timing. Okay. Um, because I knew what I wanted to accomplish professionally and athletically. Mm -hmm. I held off on having kids. Okay. Uh, as much as I, as much as I've known, I've wanted kids since I was a, a young kid myself. Um, and I worked with kids. I was an educator. I taught junior lifeguards. I've always been around kids. I knew that I wanted to be able to focus my energies primarily on them. So I waited literally until after I was retired from training with Olympics after 12 years to start our family. Megan, I don't know how she put up with me for so long because she was going to go. <laughs> She's a, she's a great lady. That's, you know what? She's a great That's what it comes down to. That really, that's what it really comes down to. And I have a lot more to say about women during this. It's funny. It's this two hours is going to go by really quickly because if anybody has ever been in labor with their partner or, or any woman, they understand the physical and mental strength of a species that as men, obviously we've never, can never do that. Um, and it just, it's so amazing. You know, I just, birth and motherhood is to a next level. So I got sidetracked, but to answer your question, um, timing, I would not have been able to be the father that I think that I am now okay. had I started s sooner um, in life. But then I was able to sell interest in my company to Nike, know buy a nice home get all settled and then go and really focus on family to the point where we even planned our first two pregnancies to my camp season schedule so i knew that i'd be able to be home and be a big part of their lives you know for the first you know first seasons <laughs> sure how does you know i mean your wife was also very accomplished i mean she's, a, she's not only just a smart businesswoman she was a model uh you know and, and she, she's She's got friends and family in Hawaii. Is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's yeah. just where we met. She was finishing up school at University of Hawaii. Um, yeah. She has some of her closest friends that still live on the, live on the, in the state, on the islands. How do, you balance, how do you balance two successful people, two successful careers, two driven people in a household, um, you know, when, when people have to make sacrifices? And the reason I bring it up is because we're in a place where we're making sacrifices, right? And sacrifices start small so that you can have big sacrifices. Just like your passion to go follow whistles was small, but the end result was huge because you worked harder at the beach. You, you did the little things, the little things. 
what can we take away from, or what can the listeners take away from how you guys have managed a relationship um, that is, that has created sacrifice. It's created patience. That's created communication. Timing. What's that? Communication. <laughs> no, seriously. What's the trick? That, that's it. That's it. <laughs> wow. Um, she was international peace studies and conflict resolutions major. Oh God. So, like, bless. <laughs> imagine our, one, one argument imagine having a discussion with a normal woman that's able to articulate and, you know, get their point across. And then you just magnify that <laughs> tenfold. And so, and it's crazy because regardless of where the conversation goes, she'll always steer back to the topic and the direction that needs to be. So emotions don't really play as much of a part as understanding that we're on the same page of this, where we're, we want to get to, but how are we going to get there together? Sure. Um, it's, it's amazing that it's, it, I can ask the longest question in the world and at the end it's still it's it's one word and it's one word that arguably you know it was it was a it's a key focal point of cool runnings the movie it's um it's a key focal point of where we're at today you know we started this conversation before recording we were chatting a little bit about you know the challenges with 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 covid and how it um you know how it came about and the cancellations and you know you're absolutely right it's one word it's communication and if you know, I'm going to go to Omar and say, hey, Omar, for the communications area of Harvard, can you guys please study and share how we absolutely buffooned the communications across the board from everybody on, the, on COVID-19, how we just didn't from the jump bring psychologists in to say, hey, you know, in a, it's almost part of our DNA of rising, of fighting, of being better, of, of one-upping, of, of doing something, and, and rules don't rules kind of matter, but really they're obstacles. And what can we do to get around them so we can be better, right? Oh, the beach closes at five. I mean, Janai's probably gonna stay till 5.15 because he wants to get that last run in or last 10 runs in while everyone else left at five. You know, it's, it's that, and we have that in us. That's a part of America of, of looking at challenges as opportunities, looking at obstacles as a way to get over them. And I think we saw COVID as an obstacle. I think we saw it as a challenge. Oh, you want to challenge my immune system? I have two beers a day and I run three miles. I'm good. You know, you're going to challenge me on that? And there's, there's yet to be a behavioral psychologist that comes on as much as a doctor comes on Good Morning America or any other channel that says, hey, can we understand the psychology of, of us and why we're having a trouble, whether it's with masks or whether it's with social distancing or whether it's with... Um, oh, I can't go to a bar or I can't go to a church or I can't do this. We never addressed those, right? We never addressed that mentality that we have. And then we just, we never looked at, we just didn't have the, because we, I don't think we knew the impact, right? We didn't look at the, um, the other impacts of, of shutting something down. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, suicide. Oh, I was just going to say that. Yeah. You know, we, War we, on drugs. Yeah. It's, War on Corona. We, we took a black and white approach to a very complex problem. And the black and white approach of the complex problem is where we're at in all of our problems. We don't treat it with communication and we don't treat it like a relationship, right? We treat it like if I do X, I get Y. Or if I don't do X, I don't get Y, but I'm gonna get Z instead. 
And that game that we play hurts us across the board in all of our relationships, right? We don't, we haven't figured out yet. And, you know, we, I know we did, we don't want to talk about this too much, but like race relations, my, my point is with this is as Americans, there's one key thing we don't do. And I put this on us and I put this on mayors. I put this on local things first. We have an explosion, a problem. We realize the problem. We empathize for a week, a month, two months, and then the economy takes off or something else happens and we get distracted. In six months from now, are we gonna have meetings in our cities, masks on or not, wherever COVID's at, whatever, are we gonna have meetings and actually sit down across from one another and say, how can I be better? Just like in a relationship, the short term and the long term, the way you've planned your life successfully, the way everyone plans their life successfully, with short term and long term goals and communication in between and strategy, where you go back and you talk and you're like, hey, am I being a good role model? Hey, what can I do better, dad? Hey, you guys, let's try this. Those things, we don't do that here. We don't, we don't sit down and say, I mean, I sat down with some friends and I was like, hey, how can I be better? How can I be better? Just me, because I just want to be better. We don't treat it like a relationship. We treat it as a problem and a solution, and it's not a problem solution. It is a relationship that we all live together on this wonderful patch of dirt. And we're very fortunate to be here. And I hate the numbers that say, well, America has more uh, minority millionaires and billionaires than any other country. Who cares? They're still treated like shit. The, the amount of money you have in your bank account does not equate to how you're treated all the time. It just doesn't. And instead of addressing the fact that how can I talk to you better? How can I be a better friend? How can I be a better person? How can I understand minorities? But anything better, right? We look, we go, well, that's the problem. What if I just, Janai, what if I just give you this? Are we good now? We're better? Sweet. All right, I'm going to go on uh, stock market, ticker, CNBC. I'll be right back. I, you know, that's my rant. So I don't know what you think about that. If I'm wrong, I eat it and I'll take it. So for me, I think do better, but for everybody, right? Like we have to understand that nobody's perfect and starting with ourselves, mm -hmm. right? Like I, I personally had a really, really difficult time, still having a really difficult time with race relations that's going on right now. I'm biracial. My mom is, like I said, you know, of uh, Hungarian descent, um, lives at, you know, grew up in Manhattan Beach, um, South Bay Orange, um, Los Angeles, and my dad's dark-skinned Jamaican. So I've been living in two worlds my entire life. So I feel like I navigate relationship, race relationships really well. But then as much as I think that I love women, you know, I have a shirt that says feminist, I love my wife, I love my mom, my sisters, I said I want to be a great role model for, there's definitely times where I've had inappropriate quote-unquote locker room talk sure right and you know as much as i i nothing to the extreme of what our presence has said but something that you know i would never want to repeat in front of my family members and you know looking back on that like during the me too movement like i gotta start not by pointing a finger but looking at myself what can i literally do to do better so i've you know i've apologized publicly privately you know, and, and I'm actually now, just in this last month, have started figured out I can't I can't change the world because I was really getting overwhelmed with just everything that's going on. But I do have impact within our aquatic world, right? Starting yeah. with water polo, um, 
you know, two and a half year, two and a half decades of strong relationships, and we've started an alliance for our diversity, inclusion, and equity in um, in water polo. And it's amazing how much support we've had, not just with people of color, but of you know of white club coaches that want to do better for their for their teams that they're coaching. And so, rather than just saying, "Okay, you do better," giving them like little things they can actually start working on. You know, homework. Well, here's one, two, or three things you can start with. Not just by reading a book, but actively going out and having conversations. You know, talk to people, making sure they feel comfortable, making sure they feel safe and protected within your teams. Um, you know, if you see something, what's funny? My son is five years old, and he knows how to speak up better than some adults, including myself. When he sees something that's that's not right, because I think we kind of get self-conscious, like, okay you know what's why is it why is it my responsibility to help this third party situation sure. but you know we're in a nightclub and we saw a fight we now try to help break it up so why not you know growing up that's how i was at least um you know and so now when i see things on the street or whatever i try to i try to intervene if possible how do you i mean that and that's that's a great your son's a great analogy right and i, I wonder as a parent you, your son speaks up and the initial reaction especially with something controversial that you, you right or wrong, right? It's like, Hey, hold on. Shh, shh, shh. How do you stop yourself from stopping that, that voice, that passionate voice that wants right for the world, that innocence that only understands that's wrong. We should do better. How do you stop yourself from shushing that and instead be the, uh, the champion, the superhero that you are to him, to, to allow him to speak that and speak that with confidence. I don't have an answer for that because I'm, that's what I'm going day by I'm, I'm in that day by day right now. Okay. So just, you know, just trying to support him as much as possible and trying to, again, just lead by example. Um, you know, talk about having those uncomfortable conversations. You were watching cool runnings right now, but <laughs> I lived a get out situation. Yeah. Did you see that film? Yes, I, I did. And that was, uh, that is, um, people have asked me, I've gotten a lot of emails, like, you should talk over this movie. And I'm just like, I, I can't right now for a lot well, this of This is perfect. This is perfect then because okay. we're, we're talking over good old Disney cool runnings. Cool runnings. John Candy has got his, you know, the, the guys are going down the mountain in this, in this makeshift. I mean, it's folks. Listen, hey, Sanka, honestly, you dead, mom? Yeah. <laughs> You've got to watch the movie, obviously, because it's hilarious and it is kind of timeless because it has a theme that a lot of films have and a lot of what we need today, which is the cart's not perfect, the coach isn't perfect, the team isn't perfect, shit, the location's not perfect. But you make the best of it and you move forward and you keep moving forward. And to your point, to where you started this, is it day by day with a long-term plan? But you got to do it. You got to build the shitty cart first to know that it's shitty. Otherwise, it's the best cart in the world. You have to breathe. You have to breathe cold air before you realize you got to try to run in it. So go, go back. Yes, get out. So my well, I'm gonna move to get out in a minute. So okay, for cool runnings, right? This movie came out in 1993. We didn't have the money to go, you know, to bring our whole family to movies that often. So it came out on VHS. Remember those old school tapes? You got to rewind oh. and bring them back. The greatest Be Kind Rewind, the sticker. <laughs> be Kind Rewind. My birthday's on Christmas. Yes, it so, is. 
for a birthday slash Christmas gift, my friends and my parents got me the VHS tape the day um, the day before I went on my first USA Junior National Team trip to Calgary. Had long dreadlocks at the time. <laughs> Had never been in the snow, snowy weather before. Oh, yeah. Watch this film, half motivated, half terrified. Um, and they're, they're shocked because you can see them like coming out of the airport, like don't want to, not wanting to go outside. Mine was actually more extreme than that. Negative 30 degree windshield factor on the plane. Okay, going back to not having that much money, I had done some stupid bets like, oh, can you eat a whole box of Altoids on the flight? So oh. I let them dissolve in my mouth <laughs> for $30. Oh. I, a couple guys each pitched in like $10 each or something to get a good laugh out of me. So we land in cold weather. I'd never been cold out colder weather before. It hurt to breathe. My mouth was raw from oh, dissolving yeah. Altoids in my mouth. Slipped, you know, getting on the bus. Did not walk on ice. Um, I didn't have layered jackets. I, I bought my first pair of pants um, I, when I was 15 years old. I'd never owned long pants before. So I'm just into wearing long pants, let alone having, I didn't know what down jackets were coming from Jamaica myself, um, the Southern California. So we finally get there and like, dude, you gotta buy a jacket. So I did a couple other stupid crazy dares and earned enough money to, <laughs> to buy a jacket. The other goalie and I at the time, Merrill Moses, who went on to become a Olympian, three-time Olympian and, and coach, coach is now at Pepperdine. For some reason, the two of us went, on what I thought was like a trolley coming out of San Diego, the, the trolley system, got on a train to go find a store. <laughs> <laughs> all we see now is white snow everywhere. And we're probably like an hour, hour and a half out one direction, knowing that we have to go and turn around and come back to a game that night. Both goalies are gone. Like, no cell phones back <laughs> back mid-90s. Oh, like, where did I and Rel go at this? You know, hearing this, our teammates' side of the story. Found a... Um, Found a down jacket, bought a jacket, and then the rest of the trip got a lot better after that. Damn. That is, you know, it's, uh, I, had a, I had some buddies, never been to Montana in our senior year of college. We took spring break. We're in Newport Beach, going to college. And I said, you know, it's a good idea. We should go to Montana. Let's go to Montana for spring break. Well, I had done the weather report, and it had snowed for 97 days straight. We had over eight feet of snow at our house, eight feet of snow. So I drive my buddy Scott Castanon, who really has it. I mean, he's been to the snow. My buddy Brett, who's kind of been in the snow, right? They're, they're SoCal guys. They're like, oh, well, I've gone up to Big Bear. It's pretty, it's the same thing, right? The snow, that you disappear. <laughs> yeah, no, you just, you fall in and just, you're done. We go in there, we go hit the, we go, we're driving up and it's getting colder and colder and colder. And these guys are like, hey, Jay, how much colder is you going to get? And I go, well, wait till we get to the snow. And they're like, wait till we, we are, we're around snow. I'm like, no, 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 no. I got like eight, nine feet of snow at my house. They're like, no, no, no. We're not going in eight, nine feet of snow. None of these guys packed a down jacket. They had like volleyball sweatshirts and those long breakaway pants on. <laughs> Dude, that was me. <laughs> yeah, we get up there and we're all broke. We're in college, man. I mean, I'm driving an 86 Honda Civic. Right, it's just like just get up there. We get up there, and you can't make a left-hand turn in my town because 
the four lane roads, we had, they had to pile snow up on the left and the right. So the snow was piled up in the middle. It took the, the center median, oh, yeah. those two lanes, up about 12 feet. And then it's just continually just lightly falling. It's like sifting flour, but for 97 straight days. So there's no left-hand turns. And these guys are just like, where did you take me? Are we at the North Pole? This is ridiculous. What is happening? We get up there. They are not prepared. We're running around. We are having fun. They're in flip-flops, no boots, only flip-flops and Converse. It was hilarious. It, you know, and I'm like, I've got an extra jacket. I've got an extra hoodie. Like, you know, <laughs> I've got all this crap at the house up in Montana, which I didn't bring down to Newport, obviously. And these guys are trying to squeeze into it because they're both bigger than me. And I was like, yeah, there you go, guys. That's all I got. I, I, have fun. <laughs> That's not like when I went snowboarding, you know, didn't had a pair of sweatpants and like a windbreaker, basically. Oh. Uh, Borrowed one glove because my friend was like, "Nice stuff." Let me borrow one glove. We kept trading back and forth, so we'd have one warm hand. Like, <laughs> oh, damn! You got to take care of something. It's all good. You can chat no, up. Don't worry about um, it. No. So going back to get out. Oh yes. Imagine watching Jaws, and then getting dropped off in Catalina and say, "Swim back to Newport Beach." Nope. Um, live on Catalina. I'm gonna be one of those island savages. So that's. <laughs> I just watched the film the week before, and I was going to St. Louis, Missouri to run a camp. This was actually Super Bowl Sunday weekend when Nick Foles won the Super Bowl. Oh, yeah. Uh, so got dropped off, or flew in, and a host, this gentleman, um, was sponsoring this camp for his community, for, and he was so nice. He came, picked me up not at the airport, but came into actual baggage claim, um, which I was like, oh, this is amazing. My wife doesn't even do as much as, you know, as much as we love each other, we just, just circle a couple times. You're the Harry Met Sally. You're like, listen, I dropped you off. I picked you up. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, next level generosity takes me back to this state, right? Like just take the, the long winding driveway. Just imagine, um, long story short, he literally had, I need that minute because my five-year-old. It's your own good. Me. Listen, dude, kids Hold are, listen, this is COVID-19 time. Dude, kids me, come in. I've had, dude, I've had more people drop in and be like, hey, what's happening? Say hi to the kids. Say hi to the wife. Don't you worry about a thing, my friend. It is all good here. Don't worry. Janai's taking a step away. He's got three kids, folks. He's got a wife, three kids in a business. It's the middle of the day, and he's taking time out to hang out with us, so. It is all good. With this, as Janai was talking about his, um, his drop-off in Toronto, that is the time of the movie, right? And you see the bobsled team, and they run. They beat feet in. And then John Candy just looks and just kind of moseys on into, into the bus here. And that is the difference in cold. I mean, cold in Newport and SoCal is, is a 50-degree night. It's 50 degrees. Cold, where I'm from in uh, Montana, is 50 below wind chill, everything. Look, they're running to the sports shop, getting down jackets. Uh, did not take quite the adventure that, that Janai took, obviously, but um, they probably actually could have taken some notes from Janai about how to go find a down jacket for cool runnings, and uh, it would have been a little funnier, that's, that's for sure. He's back. He's back. Um, so 
something out of the movies, you know, just a mass, massive estate where you take the long winding road up and his front gate was really impressive. So, oh yeah, um, my family's been in the metal business for generations helped build America. That's part of the original Golden Gate Bridge. Wow. Yes, yes. <laughs> so right. that type of that type of mistake. And it was just he and I. I'd been introduced to him through a mutual friend who was flying in the following day. And the room he took me to to stay in had multiple Confederate memorabilia pieces as well as some of the most stereotypically racist figurines of black people and Mexican people, Hispanic people. So it made me awkward, feel awkward. And like, do you have, no offense, do you have another room? Maybe cell know. service wasn't great. Kept cutting out in and out. Ended up getting a couple text messages through to my sister because it, it was back in West Coast. Um, say, hey, this is where I am. I just feel a little bit uncomfortable. It was probably about 50-50 there. And then as the evening went on, I started feeling more and more uncomfortable, you know, guns on the wall, two big hunting dogs in the house, like nothing that was wrong. It was just ugh, too familiar to the film I had just seen. Um, well, I would argue some things are a little wrong. Let's, let's go get rid of the Confederate flags. <laughs> and well, I'll get back to that because okay. jump forward to 2020 and having those uncomfortable conversations, those end up being one of the most not rewarding, but just most, I think, beneficial conversation I ended up having. But at the time, really uncomfortable. Um, we ended up going to dinner at a local like sports pub bar that he had gone to growing up to even when he was in high school. And almost like in Cool Runnings, where they come out on the ice for the first time, everyone just stares and freezes, looks at you. That was the welcome we got. Nothing negative was said. It was just the awe factor um, and I don't know if it's because I was tall. I don't know if it's because I was black. I don't know if it's because I just was from not from the community. But again, felt really awkward there. And when we went back, conversation was just really awkward, you know, short. And ended up going to sleep, halfway asleep the whole night, didn't sleep well. Next morning, he had coffee waiting for me. Nice. Um, went to go get a fresh juice and I kind of mustered up the courage or confidence, whatever you want to call it, to ask him, say, you know, I think my relationship with the Confederate flag might be different than yours. And his response was even shorter was, yep, I'm sure it is. Wow. So he didn't say anything derogatory. It just really stressed those relationships. Fortunately, the next night, my friend was there and I felt a lot safer. Um, so the flip side of all this is... Um, uh, end of March, when I kind of regrouped and got my head straight with dealing with everything that's going on with race relationships, you know, I was like, how can I play my part? You know, this is something that's been bothering me for this much time. And I called him and he said that he'd been thinking about it too, and that his relationship now with Confederate memorabilia has changed. He said, you know, he just looked at himself as like a history buff and didn't really take in consideration the flip side of how it might be offensive to other people. And we had a really nice conversation, you know, close to close to 45 minutes. And I got as much, if not more, out of it than I had, I had needed. Wow, that's that's amazing. And once again, I think it comes back to your original word, communicate. Yep, right? it really does. I mean, that's, uh, wow, that bring a little tear to my eye, man. Not going to lie. 
that's that's powerful that is um uh i wonder you know as as you're um with all the things uh on, on race that that are happening and uh, this will come full circle please be patient with me here um let's start earlier with it with a different story and then I'll, I'll i'll put a little bow on it but uh you're one of my favorite stories to tell about you there's two one is how fast you can throw the ball when you're floating in the water <laughs> and it's like hey get out of the way <laughs> hang on folks okay you're not catching that hang on and then two is the story you tell if you could please tell it again about your team training with the navy seals that's going back to me not dealing with cold weather. <laughs> <laughs> that was by far the hardest part of the entire one day of SEAL training. It wasn't even a full day, but... but you oh, guys lasted longer than anybody else, though, right? Supposedly, we're the first group, civilian or not civilian, to not have somebody ring the bell. And I think it's partially because we came in as a team. When you think about a lot of these individuals coming in for SEAL training, as physically fit and mentally tough as they are, they don't have the support going into training, right, mm -hmm. of a team. So they're like almost looking at, I think sometimes the first day as, you know, someone next to them as competition versus the end result, the SEALs that actually come out of it, that's that pure team cohesive unit. So I think that's what we had going for us into it. And they knew also not, they knew to focus on our weaknesses and not our strengths. We didn't do any swimming activities, right? Not one. So rude. So rude. What we did in the water was link hands, walk out on the surf, 51 degrees. And actually heated up to 52 degrees by when the sun came up. But the water temperature remained 51 degrees. It was the day after Christmas, December 26, 2007. Post-birthday. Um, post-birthday celebration. Post-birthday. The nice thing about it was it was actually in Coronado, where we did it, and so I got to see my parents um, because my parents were still down in San Diego, so I got to see my parents, um, you know, for my birthday. But get up, go there. Actually, it might have been December 27th, to be honest. But um, yeah, the hardest thing was just linking arms with each other, walking on the surf, and letting this freezing water wash over a few for it felt like endless amounts of time. You know, rewatching the video, NBC did a piece you can find it on YouTube as well. I think it was cumulative time of about three or four hours in the water, but it was just, I got hypothermia. Um, so physically I was shutting down. I, I got to the point where I couldn't say my name. I was chattering, but I didn't want to quit for my teammates. So I stuck with it. Um, one of our teammates fell off an obstacle and hurt his knee fairly bad where he was out for a while and he didn't quit. He made it through physically kept going. Um, another one of our, another one of our teammates, was so cold from being in the water when you went to go do the rope climb when you have guys that are you know six six 250 260 pounds um it's a lot of muscle mass bigger than most seals are and he ended up doing something with his shoulder which was a significant injury to him wow. but through all that not one person quit they wanted us to right and yeah. even said like um andy stump is his name he actually is a oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, he, was, yeah, yeah. he was our lead trainer Oh, oh, you could, oh yes. <laughs> bro, you might as well have Jocko as your lead trainer. Come on. <laughs> so he was our lead trainer. And watching, re-watching the footage, he's like laughing at us, right? Like, these guys have no idea what they're in for. And it was true because 
you know, like when you're shutting down, you know, physically and mentally from hypothermia, um, your body just doesn't perform the way you want it to. But I was able to somehow, you know, with the support of my team, get back out there and, you know, say, do you want to ring the bell? Or if you get out of the water now, the whole team gets out, but we all stuck it out. So long story short, I think that was definitely a team building experience that I think primarily because it was so unique from anything we'd done at that point. The reason I asked that, and I wanted you to share that story is because my naive heart believes that as America, we're in that cold water right now. I really do believe that we're not the cohesive team that you guys were. We're a dysfunctional team, but we're in that cold water. We have choices to make. And we can be better if we just stay in it a little bit longer. If we get a little more uncomfortable. If we ask those tough questions, if we do a little bit better with one-on-one, -on -one, with one another, right? Coming out of that water, ending this day, is gonna feel a hell of a lot better. It's gonna feel completed. You know, uh, I, um, there's, there's, a, there's a, this altruistic part of me because I have a kid that goes, man, I will suffer through, and by suffer, I mean I will sacrifice and, 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 uh, and work hard to build a better world for her, a legitimate communication better world, a better world that means that the people around her um, the, the, uh, that, um, that in the past we would say is different, right? But in fact, they're just people, right? We're all just people. Uh, that, that this world would just be better, that it would be more on point, uh, that it would be more open, that in, in openness as far as compassion, as understanding, you know, the, um, whether it's civil how rights. how old is he? What's that? How old is he? Uh, she, she is a six year old. Six. Yeah, so the fact that she's understanding that now, like willing to make those sacrifices, is phenomenal. Because when, after the second week of, of social distancing, of quarantining, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. um, I made an Instagram post saying, I don't think that the other side is truly going to understand a different perspective until it affects somebody within their immediate bubble, yeah. right? Tell someone they know and care about either is, is extremely ill or even passes away, or if they're forced, you know, with extreme financial hardship, it's going to be really difficult to see the other perspective side. So going back to what you said earlier in the, in the show about had we had as a country, as a nation, as a society, you know, leaders, leadership that was talking and approaching, focusing on the psychological aspect of everything that was, could potentially happen, I think we would have been a lot better prepared. I agree. You know, my, my wife works in, in the hospitals, PRN, and uh, works in the, works with uh, the really physically disabled and, uh, and the elderly that are very disabled, both high, you know, highly uh, susceptible to, uh, to COVID. And she's right there, man. I mean, she's right there in the front lines dealing with that. She was at a, hall, a place the other day and they got shut down because they had 20 new COVID patients. 24 hours, 20 new, you know, and, and she, she likes these people, right? I mean, she's helping like Jim and, and all, you know, and this Patty and all these other people, right? She's helping learn how to walk again. They're 70 and they've lost a leg to diabetes or whatever it may be. So she, you know, she sees those people and, uh, and she's right there. So what happens when 
the facility shuts down because people still, those 20, 20 people still have COVID and if it's within- well, It shuts down to the fact that they don't take any new patients in. They can't take any new patients in. Uh, the staff is tested, I believe, every five days. And then, um, and then uh, they have to move healthy people who they assume are healthy to other places to create a COVID wing that no one can go in and out of. And then those people don't have any social interaction whatsoever. They are locked in their rooms. Food is delivered to them through a slot under the door. I mean, there's no interaction. And think about that psychologically, right? Yeah. Like, even if you don't have, even if I'm 100% healthy, being isolated, you know, from human interaction contact is, is really tough. It's super tough. I mean, it was, you know, it's, um, she sees it firsthand, right? She sees these, you know, dining rooms that are three quarters of the way empty. And the people are sad because they don't get to have coffee with their friend. They don't get to play bridge with their friend. And there's no explanation why other than they're, they're not feeling well. Uh, and that's not the right explanation. And that's not, not the right tone, I would say, uh, say, say to take. But it is, um, it's a bigger issue than I think people want to make it out to be because I think we really want to try to make it out to be it's the flu. Uh, and we've been told that. It's a bigger issue in the fact that I think that we don't want to address, like we've talked about a couple of times here, the, uh, the emotional and psychological impacts. And then I don't think we want to address the long-term impacts of this. You know, Kids not being in school, uh, school is a beautiful place. College, high school, grade school, you know, kindergarten, you get to meet people from different socioeconomic backgrounds and engage with them and learn how to talk with them and be friends with them and hear different ideas and thoughts about things. Agree or disagree is inconsequential to the fact that you hear stuff differently and you should. You know, that's why books are available. That's why, you know, reading and conversation and, and having conversations like this are important. Uh, and it's, it's, it's heartbreaking that kids can't do it. And I think what's more heartbreaking, and the first thing I said when South, right when South by got canceled, the first thing I said was, I'm more upset with Google, YouTube, Yelp, Microsoft, the big tech companies. Because they pulled out of the South by and they said, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. I'm not crossing the street. And what I meant by that wasn't physically they're going to stop their parties. Like, inconsequential, I don't care about their parties. We have the greatest technology we've ever known, history of the world, the greatest technology. And we're not embracing it and we're not evolving it and we're not getting aggressive with it and we're not pushing the limits, right? We're, we're not trying to figure out ways to create new engagement. I mean, our biggest jump in new engagement is Zoom. It's been around for five years, seven years. Skype's been around for 10, right? This is, our, this, is our big, this is our big jump. The brightest minds in the world, the people who have AI and artificial intelligence, the greatest thinkers who are reconstructing the digital age, the way that Henry Ford reconstructed the way we transport, tra uh, created transportation across the US. These are our leaders. This is it. Our kids are starving for interaction and understanding how to communicate and engage. People outside of them are starving for interaction and understanding how to engage. And our biggest thing is Zoom? Zoom? 
the fucking internet. Sorry, my language, but seriously, come on, man. We can do better. And it seems like we're phoning it in on this, and I don't know why. And it breaks my heart. Yeah, it's, for me, I, I'm so far removed from that tech world. You know, you talk, I keep talking about day by day and you know, <laughs> day by example. Uh, you know, I started this new nonprofit, and I am so focused on just being my authentic self and emotional and real and vulnerable that we would not get anywhere. <laughs> it's so good that we have a team that's so balanced on, okay, these are our long-term objectives. This is what we're going to accomplish this here, here, and here. Because I, when I start looking at world problems, I, I haven't been able to approach it the same way I have in my own life with a simple goal because my goals have been achievable because they've been accomplished before. Mm -hmm. Like I have a phenomenal father role model, so I knew how to be a good father. Um, you know, I've seen past Olympic teams, I've seen athletes train, you know, from NBA athletes to NFL athletes, I can pick and choose different things, but we've never lived in a utopia with a society. So I, I just want to fix everything at once <laughs> and that can't be done. So I'm refocusing on just influencing my aquatic world and building from there. And here in a great transition, because one of my favorite parts of this show, sometimes at the beginning, sometimes in the middle, sometimes at the end, we're right about, you know, uh, where, we're an hour, 15 minutes in, hour, 10 minutes in. So um, I like to celebrate small businesses and people that, you know, we do about 350, 400 downloads a day all around the world. Uh, US, Canada, Chile, Denmark, Iran, Kazakhstan. God, I mean, I think Kazakhstan because of Tim Kennedy, right? Military bases there. <laughs> I, got, I got some people hooked. God bless them. But we got, so we're all around the world. Uh, we're in every major city. Um, and what I like to do is I like to celebrate a small business, one that impacts me or one that I want to impact that, that is special to me. Uh, you know, for, for me, uh, my dear friend, Elijah, he loves robots and he's, you know, um, he went to USC to become a mechanical engineer and he got sidetracked with PR and movies but he came back to his roots and uh, Austin, Texas is one of the few places that didn't have a, uh, a technology and robotics center. They just didn't have it. All the great things we have here, all the great music, food, everything else, we just didn't have that here. So he's been working his butt off for the last two years to create this, to build this, to teach not just STEM, but robotics and robotics the way that you found water polo. And it's like, you don't have to know CAD, you don't have to know Python, you don't have to know how to fly a DJI drone. No, not at all. You can just come in and play, and if you like it, then it's this project-based piece where it's like, if you like that, try this. If you like this, try this. If you like this, try And it's, 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 it's the evolution of growing. It's building a strong foundation and, and growing from that. And that foundation starts with passion and fun, and then it moves into solving problems and, and, and where that goes. And, it's called Roboters, and he's doing a great job. So um, I wanted to celebrate him on that, uh, and and that small business, and what he's trying to build. What for is you. called Roboters? Roboters. Yep. It's like gamers, roboters. People who play games, gamers. People who love robots, roboters. For you and your nonprofit, tell us about it, please. And anyone listening, you know, oh, where they can it, find it. It's Alliance and Diversity and Inclusion um, with Equity for Water Polo. Um, we focus a lot on learning how to swim, just water safety in underrepresented communities. 
and in breaking that barrier, you know, watching Kings of Comedy back in the day and I think it was Cedric Entertainer said, you know, we got a black hockey player now. What's next? Water polo player? You know, I just started laughing. I was like, you know, You're that's like, me. You know, <laughs> right yep. here. Being, being the first two black Africa black players ever for the U.S., you know, first Olympic team sport and 104 years later, we're here. So, you know, if we can just bring some fun activity. Is there a website or is there a place where they can go check it out? Um, you, just the, the initials. Okay. So I'll send it to you. Send it to me. I'll put it in the, I'll put in the Instagram post. I'll put it in the feed on this as well. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, but yeah, I think, you know, COVID's, you know, something that eventually we're going to be able to conquer, but, you know, drowning has been an issue in our society for a long time. And if we can get kids involved in a fun way through splash ball, just where it's interactive playing a game and learning out some at the same time, I think we're going to be able to reach even more people and then making sure that people feel safe and protected as they, as almost I call it acceptance, right? Accessibility and acceptance once they're involved in sport. Nice. It's, it's funny you bring that up about drowning because I, my daughter, we have a pool. So, you know, three months old, taking her to swim class. And she got th to three years old and we're just still taking her to swim all the time. And uh, the lady goes, hey, uh, no swimsuits today. I'm like, all right. She goes, no, sir, watch this. Clothes. They didn't clothes. swim in clothes. They yeah. assumed they could only swim if they were in their swimsuits. It, I mean, they take things so literally, small kids do. Here's your swimsuit. Now you can swim. Got it. Fall in and they're in jeans. They're like, sorry, man, I can't swim. I'm in jeans. That was one thing. The other thing, I had worked with this group called MICA. It's a community development um, corporation. And uh, what it did is it worked with um, underprivileged areas in uh, Costa Mesa and LA and other areas, right? Underprivileged areas. And it'd create community leaders. So if the traffic light was out or the park light was out, I would teach an art class for the kids while the parents learned how to go to city hall and ask for the grass to be mowed at the park or the light to be changed or the swing to be fixed. So it was creating leaders in the community. And one of the fun things we did is we went to the beach one day. We're gonna teach kids how to surf was the idea. There were so many kids that had never been to the beach. Five miles away, didn't know it was there. Five miles. Didn't know it was there. Couldn't swim. I'm Montana, Orange County. Yeah, a, yeah, this, yeah. This is this is not me in Montana. This is Costa Mesa, California. This is Los Angeles, California. This is Compton. Didn't know the water was right there and was terrified. I'm there. I've never surfed before. My claim to fame: the one thing that I will put on my headstone, one hundred percent. I got four kids to stand up on a surfboard. That's awesome. Never surfed before in my life. I was swimming alongside, holding that damn board up. One of those big, wide long Dude, yeah, stand, almost like a stand-up paddleboard size. Yeah. And I'm just paddling underneath, and they're like, I'm up, I'm up. I'm like, this is fantastic. They're great. One of the greatest days of my life, because these kids went from, what's that? Why do I feel that water hitting so hard? That's scary, to we're going to get our feet wet. They're like, what is this? This is the ocean. Hold on. I've heard of Jaws. No, no, no. We're going to be okay. To they got on boards. Some of them laid down, had the day of their life. 
every one of us got sunburnt. <laughs> so one, one other thing I want to give a shout out to them Please. right now. And, and by the way, also, real quick, sorry to interrupt, but real quick, also, any local business. We got actually a, a lot of listeners in Newport. Oh, and, lo local, oh, not Austin, Texas. But no, no, I'm talking about you, where you're at, because I got a lot of listeners in Mission so Beach. Jamal Hill, Jamal Hill is a Paralympic swimmer. Oh, okay. um, training for Tokyo, which is now Tokyo 2021. Mm -hmm. But he's developed an online swim session where a lot of it, you were talking about never being in the water before, is just feeling comfortable putting your face in the water. So the first half of the swim lessons are actually at home, putting your face in the Rosal Bowl, learning how to hold and cup your hands. So his website is called Swim Uphill, like his last name, Jamal Hill, but the website is Swim Uphill. Mm -hmm. He's partnered with Airbnb, so you can actually do the online Airbnb experiences. Um, I I'm took just typing that into my phone. I'm not, I'm not ignoring you. I'm just typing it. Swim up here. Yeah, no, I took my two, my five-year-old, um, you know, just at home in my backyard. I had them in a, you know, big bucket. And then I also have one of those home things from Home Depot that you, you can use for a garden bed or for a horse trough. We did a swim lesson, you know, in our backyard without having a, a, a traditional pool, for, per se. That's awesome. Hey, you got a you got a local uh, spot you love to eat at? You want to give a shout out to? Yeah, I eat at home these days. Yeah, <laughs> old school. I think I'll I'll, I'll come back to you on that one because I just no, it's, it's funny. It feels like a world a world away. A world. I try. Like, I mean, we you know obviously uh, financially it's hit a lot of people. It hit us hard. Um, you know, uh, my it's interesting in um, and once again lack of communication, right? my wife's pay gets cut because she can't go into places because of COVID. So everyone's like, Oh, all these nurses, man, they're making all this money. Not my wife. She ain't making all that money. I mean, well, she can't go do her work. Omar is a ER physician and works on with medical boards. They've, I think he's received, I don't want to not direct quote, but somewhere between 30 to 50% pay cuts yeah. with more work because yep. they've cut back on elective procedures. And I guess that's where a lot of the hospitals actually make their, their profits from. Yep. Um, yeah, it's, there's so many things that are going on behind the scenes that we're just not aware of. We're not aware of and we get jaded because unfortunately we're in a 10 second world and you see a TikTok video and you go, oh, look, they're dancing. So they're having fun. And it's like, man, they're blowing off steam. And how they blow off steam is not for me to judge. What I'm here to do is try to support everyone that I can and the one thing that I've learned, and you know me from basketball, I'm a little bit of a hothead sometimes. I raise my voice. I get a little emotional and fired up. And the one thing COVID, and I'd like to ask, I'm going to ask you this as well. The one thing COVID has really taught me, the one thing it's taught me is to be a little more patient. Even with people that are being assholes, be a little more patient. To let them, let them breathe, let them say their thing, and then look at them and give them a smile and go, okay, I understand. I, I can understand that point. Uh, do you want to hear a counterpoint? If you don't, that's okay too. And be able to walk away and not try to win every battle at every moment, but try to win the war at the end. And uh, trust me, there are days where it's not that easy. There are, there are days where, um, you know, like these guys, it's the snow and I'm running across a drawbridge. And I'm like, no, not, not my day. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> but there are other days where they're like, okay, and I'm not doing it to change their mind. I'm doing it only because I want them to see a different perspective. I want a little paradigm shift, just a little shift. And that little shift to your point earlier, that 1%, if we can just 1% of someone just to look at something a little differently to create a little more compassion or a little more understanding, 
that's what it's all about. So look at like to kind of break perspectives, you know, not, not break perspective, but change perspectives sure. um, for not just for black people realizing that other black people can swim and play water polo, but also for white people to recognize that there's some of the best in that entire world. Um, on the men's side right now, we have a young kid named Max Irving who played at UCLA and has been playing professionally in Europe. And on the women's side, we have the best goalie in the entire universe named Ashley Johnson, who also happens to be from Jamaica. So I texted her yesterday, her and her sister both, that we're doing cool runnings. She said, hey, Senka, you dead, man? (laughs) People have to understand, like, you go, I don't know if it's still there, but when I used to fly back into the airport in Montego Bay, they'd have a full setup in the airport, um, the terminal of the movie set, from the, the sled to, you know, other memorabilia. You know, like their little Hollywood Walk of Fame was right there for Cool Runnings. And then they were doing it as a fundraiser for their upcoming Winter Olympics. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great movie, great story. One, one of the cool things about Cool Runnings, double cool there, not my best communicative point. Uh, but one of, the, one of the best parts is, is transition. Uh, they continually figure out ways in adversity to transition positively as a team uh you know all the teams you've been on what uh what's been one of the bigger transitions that either um, you've led or you've been a part of that's been led in a, in a transition for in, in a positive way to win well unexpected ones i would say is coaching changes okay right when you're the highest part of your leadership changes and all of a sudden you don't have a say in it it's just something that's out of your control um and just realizing that even though an individual is changing, you still have to compete with the people that you've been practicing with. And, you know, I think the Olympics is a phenomenal event, but it's not much different than world championships. It's not much different than any other event. You know, the same way we have all this emphasis on the Super Bowl, right? Nothing's different other than the, the maybe the viewership, right? Mm-hmm. It's the whole football game. You know, referees, field, football, <laughs> all the same. You there's probably no, se- that there's no seven point the catch. Like there's exactly. no like. <laughs> it's not, like, not NBA jams where you don't get like a you know, like <laughs> special turbo spot or something. Um, and I think that's what kind of makes great athletes phenomenal is able to be consistent with their improvement, right? You want to be able to peak at the right time at the end of the season, not have an all-star game you know, in the middle of the season and then down the next game, you know, for the rest of the season. But, you know, always coming up ready to show, ready to play. And you look at the greatest athletes in any sport, um, and it's, you know, the, it's consistency. Sure. Loaded question here, but I want your honest answer, please, as best as you can give. You have worked with kids in art. Uh, you know, you're, you're training kids in water polo. You've got a nonprofit. Uh, you're a great father, you're a great communicator. How come you haven't partnered up with Dr. Phil yet? Uh, Dr. Phil. <laughs> only interaction I had with Dr. Phil is that dinner that we had. <laughs> Dr. Phil, Paul Mitchell, Ron White, and us. And uh, us. Uh, and us. Uh, and I, I, it was funny, I, I was just talking about the other day in a group text with, with the guys. and we're Yeah. Like, how did you know those people? Like, we didn't. We just got invited for some reason. And um, 
I got an invite through a friend of mine. They're like, I can't make it. Do you want to grab some buddies and go to this? And I was like, yeah. And it was like clown car experience because I had the Mini Cooper. <laughs> yes, yeah. We drove to LA. <laughs> we drove to LA. Had to go pick up the head writer from People Magazine to join us. And, we're, and remember, uh, whoever was our president at the time, was it Obama? No, it was, um, yeah. it was Obama. He was in town. So and we're so fighting traffic. All, like all the major streets are blocked off. We have to take yeah. side streets. <laughs> I get Dr. Phil's wife a little boozy, stuck him with the champagne bill tab. <laughs> we're outside talking to the lead actress from Species 2. You guys get your picture taken together on the red carpet. He, his wife stumbles out of their back of their car a little boozy, hands me her book and says, I really want you to know what you, what you think about this. I say to her, well, I'll probably need your phone number. He puts his arm around me, squeezes my shoulder real tight and goes, thanks for getting my wife drunk, buddy. You're not getting the number. And then <laughs> drives away. <laughs> like, situationally, there's moments where I'm a good friend. And then there's moments where I'm a real bad friend. And that time I was kind of a bad friend. And I apologize. <laughs> no, like, it's still a memorable experience. Um, <laughs> talking about friends, you, you met one of my really close, again, Jamaican friend, Peta. Uh, oh, Peta's published best. Owner. She was in Austin. We hung out yeah, for a couple yeah, of years. She, yeah. she owns Caribbean Living Magazine and Swanky Retreats. And talk about a lifestyle, man. She gets to go and travel from resort to resort, covering them in an authentic way, you know, where it's not just a photo shoot, it's just her, you know, bringing in celebrities and enjoying the islands, enjoying the countries, enjoying the resorts. Um, and that's, I met her, you know, one of the, one of the pre, you know, get one of the gifting lounges in, in LA and we hit it off and, you know, I guess she was, it was down to Terrell Owens, Britney Spears and myself, who she was going to bring to, to um, Antigua and she ended up picking me because she thought it'd be more fun to travel. So I got to bring my teammate, Peter Hudna at the time. And we went down, just had a phenomenal time, like a 27 page spread in her magazine. And we've become, you know, really, really close family friends ever since. So when she sent me a photo of you guys together in Austin, Texas, like these two worlds are just connecting out. It just reminds me how small the world is. It's crazy. It's a small world. Yeah. She, um, we still, we still stay in touch. We still chat every once in a while, probably once a month. Um, obviously I follow her on Instagram and all the other, uh, social channels and chime in when she'll ask like, what cover do you think? You know, and like, well, Ogilvy and Mather would say this, but your style, the last four episodes has been this. And you know, then I'll get a DM from her. You do look at everything. And I'm like, I try to, I mean, dude, you're asking, I'm going to look, I want to try to get, you know, <laughs> I'm a brand and communications person. Like I should probably <laughs> just not pull stuff out of my butt and try, you know, it's, it's your business and you're actually, being honest and asking, I will, I will give my 10 cents. That's for sure. What, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I want a uh, fun question here as you are, um, sitting back and you're in the beautiful Southern California sun and you're enjoying the day. And I, uh, I was getting ready for this call and I did a workout in my, uh, I did a bike ride and then a workout in my garage and I take my shirt and I wring it out. I'm like, it's just, pouring out it's disgusting it's pouring out water right and i was like be sure to hydrate kids but then at the same time i'm on my third beer hanging out here doing this podcast what 
you know, those are my cheats, right? Those are the things where I was like, this is my reward, even though it doesn't help me in any way, shape or form, uh, other than just stay neutral. What is, Jani Kerr, what is your cheat? Well, the Rock's famous for his cheat meals. You know, um, I'm known for having beers for every podcast, whether it's at a podcast with someone in New Zealand at 2 a.m. or 8 a.m., I'm, I'm, I'm going strong. That's where we need to go, by the way, is to New Zealand. Since they, they eliminated COVID, they now it's up to four. A whole oh, Let's go. Let's the families and go, son. Let's go. No. I have a camp there every other year, and I'm looking forward to going back next year. Oh, I hear it's amazing. Um, no, as far as cheats. Do you have cheat meals? I've never had it been on a diet in my life. So my whole philosophy is a joke about water polo players right there on the seafood diet. You see food and you eat it. Because when you're playing water polo, you just burn calories nonstop. But early on in my career, well, one, my parents are always healthy, right? My dad's a spear fisherman. We ate fish as our primary protein all the time. Um, rather than red meat and my mom's hippie organic this and that you know going to mama gucci's um which was one of the original stores before was whole foods oh yeah so i've always eaten healthy but when i started training i started wanting to eat more what i would do is i would make sure that i had healthy foods available eating easy first so okay. rather than going with the drive-thru when you're hungry eating three three burgers or a whole entire pizza on the way home from practice i made sure i had healthy snacks uh, we had a salmon sponsor at one point. So Wolf Weigel connected out of this guy out of Alaska. We had salmon burgers, locks, like salmon jerky. So I was on the side of the pool deck. I, you got to understand, when, there was a time when we played for Eastern European coach named Ratka Rudic when we were training basically 10 hours a day, right? Practices were supposed to be four hours in the morning, four hours a night with weights in between. Um, and – I was eating probably 12, 13,000 calories a day. And it's funny because there's all this hype around um, Michael Phelps's diet and this and that. But I remember going into like the, you know, the, the dining hall Olympic training center when he was still, you know, in his tra tra prime training times. And I was getting two trays. And that was just normal for us, right, of, of food because we're in the water longer. We have, we're bigger. We have more muscle mass. We're just burning more calories. Sure. So – making sure that you eat good, healthy foods first, and then you eat your pizza, cookies, whatever, afterwards. Um, but no, I, you know, I, I drink coffee, but ever since I've had kids, I started drinking coffee. But it's not, I wouldn't really consider that a cheat. I'd say that now is probably I'd binge watch different things on TV. What's your guilty hard. pleasure? What's your TV guilty the, pleasure that you just- The last one I was watched was the new season of Ozarks. Like, all right, I got one for you. I want you to watch this and then text me when you get done watching it, okay? Tomorrow? Happen, <laughs> yeah, Happen Leonard. Happen Leonard? Yep, it's on Sunday. Oh, two, two names, okay. Yep, so it's the only thing now is with, with a five-week-old, a two-year-old, and a five-year-old, I've been cutting back on those cheat days because I have no idea what time my, my quote-unquote alarm clock's going to cry. Oh, no, I'm, I'm with you on that. I got, I mean, I got a six-year-old, and, you know, we – we're really strict on when she goes to bed, right? It's 7 p.m., 7.30 at the latest. We're the, we're the exact same time frame, yeah. Yeah, and I was like, you're going to bed. She goes, it's sunny out. I hear kids laughing. I'm like, good. Those kids aren't going to grow up strong like you. Like, I just, like, COVID-19, can't go. I mean, I, any excuse I have, right? I'm like, go to bed. And then still, 8 o'clock, 8.15, walking out. Are you guys still up? How's everything going? Everything okay? Now, you've got a youngster. I mean, you've got a baby. So you got, you, got, you got crying and other things going. You've got feedings and other things going on. 
uh, that, that disrupt that, uh, that, that make that a little more difficult. But yeah, Hap and Leonard, um, the, the, the biopsy of it is Hap is a, it takes place in the South in the late 70s, early 80s. Hap is a white pacifist who did not go to the Vietnam War. Leonard is his African-American best friend who went to the Vietnam War and he's gay. And there's, I mean, it's no spoiler alert in this, there's no happy ending. It's just two best friends trying to build the best life they can as friends. And, and it comes back to communication and respect. And, and that bond that's done in the first two episodes, it's only three or four seasons long, I think they're all eight, eight episodes. That bond, that thing that happens in the, in the, in the light of racism, in, uh, in the light of, of people you know, uh, still mad about the Vietnam War, in just the light of poverty, in all of those things, how they put a smile on their face on the dumbest thing reminds me when I was growing up poor, when we were making our own bullets so we could go out and hunt to have meat so we could eat. I look at it and I'm just like, man, I never wanna be in that position that my mom and dad were in when I was growing up, wondering how the lights were gonna stay on, wondering when we were gonna eat. I remember my dad telling me when I was eight years old, I wanted to go to camp, church camp. I don't wanna go to church camp. And he laid down the finances. I'm eight, <laughs> I can't, I can barely add. I'm horrible at math, still bad at math. And he goes, here's how much we bring in. Here's how much goes out. We have $50 left. If you go to camp, mom and dad don't eat for a week. What's your choice? Can I go to one day of camp? answer oh my gosh oh i needed that my cheeks hurt now well you can see my yeah. <laughs> that is great but that's how it was so i see it and i was like man i never want my kid i never want to be in that position but also i understand it a little bit and i understand it a little bit and then i also you know um i have other friends and, and scenarios and situations that that, that lend to it a little bit more uh, but it's it's well acted. It's well done. Um, it's a uh, it's great storyline. Every every season's a great storyline, and it, it brings you in. So that's that's my right because because guilty pleasure is my TV as well. It's late night. I um I'm like you. I don't know when the alarm clock's going to go off. I mean, we have a dog, so there could be a thunderstorm. It's Texas, two thirty in the morning. Man, my dog freaks out, starts crying, howling. Basset hound doesn't know what to do, oh, man. and. All of a sudden, I'm sleeping on the hardwood floor with a dog curled up in my armpit. It's nine, you know, 75 pounds, shivering and <laughs> trying to sleep. And I'm on the hardwood floor with a with a pillow, going, "Yeah, no, this is rough, champ. This is rough for you." you know, did you know I had dengue fever? No. What the what? Oh, it's fucks. I actually went to Lakeshore. I didn't play basketball because I wasn't feeling that good. I just come back from Thailand when Meg and I were still dating. Oh, we got to talk about that afterwards, Thailand. 
Mental note. All right, get after it. Dengue fever. Long story short, I tried to take a yoga class, and I was like, this is really hard. I'm sweating. Don't feel good. I actually flew to Texas. I flew, um, flew into Houston to speak um, at a convention. I was like, I'm usually not this nervous. Like, I'm sweating through my suit. I said, I'm burning up. Like, and I'm getting back to the hotel room, just stripping down to my underwear. Um, next day, we flew to to Dallas to see one of my wife's friends, actually from Hawaii, moved out and went to lunch. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to stay in the car. I don't feel good. Sweat through. They had a brand new truck. Of course, you're in Texas. You got a 4150, 250, or 350. It's one of those ones, right? Um, but cloth seats. And I just sweat through it. I felt bad because it was like, you know, new car smell, engine eye. <laughs> went back to their house, went to dinner. Um, they're going to go to dinner. I was like, you know, I'm just going to stay at home. And what made me think about this is one, you being in Texas, two, having your big dog because they had, I don't know, it was a bass and hound, I don't know what it was, but they had these two big dogs and they left for dinner. And I was on the couch and I ended up basically, I, I wasn't passed out, I was conscious, but I didn't have enough energy to make it to the bedroom. And so I was trying to crawl on the floor and these dogs just licking my face and I took a pillow and just tried to hold over my head. So by the time they got back from dinner, they took me to like a walk in urgent care, pulled out the biggest needle I ever seen in my life, ready to do a spinal tap. I was like, no. no. <laughs> Called my friends back at Hogue Hospital. Like, listen, they think you have meningitis. You have to do it. So I think we went to like a specific, that wasn't Baylor, but like a, another, like a partner of Baylor Hospital. Yeah. Baylor Staten White. Did the, did the spinal tap, came back negative, didn't know what was going on, flew the next morning, went to back to Orange County, went straight to Hogue. By this time, I guess my left lung was collapsing from pneumonia. Um, but I had 105 fever for three days now, spent, sent my blood to the CDC back and came back with dengue fever. Um, but yeah, so I lost 25 pounds in about 10 days. Oh, yeah, not a fun experience, but no, damn. What part of yeah. Thailand did you go to? Sorry. What part of uh, Thailand? I don't remember that trip. I think we were in Chiang Mai up my north. My favorite spot. Favorite oh, yeah. spot, love Chiang Mai. I, I never thought I was going to love Chiang Mai because I'm more of a beach guy. You know, I've been going there since the 90s, I think. Um, you know, going to Phuket and Koh Samui, those Koh Samui's of- the jam, brother. I love Koh Samui. So, Konong Wong, probably mispronouncing it, but it's literally these two tiny islands that you could zip line from. Yes. The other island, right off of Koh Tao. That's where I proposed to my wife. No. Took, me three, took me three tries. So her most spiritual animal in the world is, a, is an elephant. So we're actually up in Chiang Mai. This is a different trip. Um, a different trip. And I was going to, on one of those elephant reserves, mm-hmm. supposedly it's the ones where they actually treat them carefully, like they rescue them. And so we, you adopt them for the day. Yeah, you, you had to bathe them. In the river and you bathe them, all that stuff. And I had... A real ring, which I did not bring with me, because I was not about to bring. But I had to made a ring out of one of the thick elephant hairs, and I was going to. Oh. I was going to propose on top of the elephant. Well, sometime during the day, a different elephant went in front of the mama elephant's baby, so they couldn't see the baby, mm-hmm. and started a stampede. Elephant freaked out, knocked over trees, knocked over huts, like. Some people that were on a group got thrown off the elephant, almost got stampeded. So all of a sudden, you're traumatized now. And if you can Google Konan Wong, you'll see like the top of the island. So that, anyway, that, launched, that, that, that attempt was done. Wasn't about to do it then. Went down to Konan Wong. 
And I was like, okay, these two little islands, we're going to climb, rock climb up to the very, very peak where you could see everything. Mm -hmm. And she retelling her point of view was as she was making up about 30 feet from the top, she started panicking. <laughs> then we're about 15 feet from the top and we have like one more boulder to go. And she just freezes, just clean onto the side of the rock. And she can't look up, she can't look down. She's starting to like, all of her muscles are clamped, losing all of her energy, about to slip and slide. So, and she said like, she thought at this point, she was convinced I was gonna propose. So she wanted to make it, but she just really physically <laughs> forced her body up. So I didn't propose then. What I ended up doing is super early in the morning, going and getting little pieces of rocks and broken coral. I didn't break it, already broken coral and writing, will you marry me underwater? So we went for a snorkel in the morning at the sunrise. And when she saw it, swam over and she saw, will you marry me? Jumped on top of it. And I had, you know, old, one of the first iPhone cases that was waterproof. It's like a plastic bag. So I had the footage like all blurry and stuff with fish swimming by. It was pretty cool. That's awesome. That is awesome. We, uh, we did our, uh, uh, we got married in Thailand. So we flew into Bangkok. I almost didn't get allowed into Thailand. It was hilarious. So we, Why? I had a tear on my passport. Yeah, it's almost like money. Like if your money is not pristine, they won't accept it. If they your passport has a, a little damage, they won't accept it. <laughs> so I go up, I'm, I roll in, we get into Thailand and we go into two different lanes and it's me, I'm an idiot. And uh, we're hanging out and she goes through and this guy throws his flag up and hits a button. And I'm like, oh, did I win? And he's like, uh, no, you didn't win anything. And so we're hanging out, we're chatting. And this guy's like, I can't, um, I can't give you, I can't let, allow you access into Thailand because I can't put our stamp. I can't put our, our president seal on, uh, on your passport. And the reason I can is because it's got a tear in it. So I'm sitting next to a guy that smuggled, I'm sitting next to three guys. One smuggled, tried to smuggle snakes into Thailand. The other guy had drugs. And the other guy was bringing, I don't know what, some counterfeit something in. So I'm around like criminals. It's me and some criminals. And I'm a criminal because I have a tear on my passport. That's all I got, nothing else. And so the head guy comes over, he goes, what's going on? My, my wife is crying on the other side. And he looks and he goes, who's that? Is that your sister? And I go, no, that's my wife. Uh, you know, show him the ring, show the ring. Go, we're getting married. Uh, we're married, we're coming to Thailand. I didn't want to let him know we're gonna get married in Thailand. I said, we're married, we're going to Thailand. And he goes, who would marry such a disgusting man? And I had read that they will try to push your buttons a little bit. They want to get you a little agitated and there's nothing wrong with that, that happens. So he just keeps pushing. He's like, you're gross. Why would, you know, you're disrespecting my country. You disrespect yourself. I can't believe you'd carry something so disgusting. You know, he's really angry at me and he just keeps going. And I'm just taking it on the chin, bro. I'm like, that's good. I understand, sir. I apologize. And I go, you know, if my wife um, needs to do this, uh, do this by herself, then she will do it by herself. Uh, I apologize for being so disrespectful. It is not my intent. I did not know. I just didn't know. He stamps my passport and he puts a note on there that does not allow me to come back in the country with that same passport. And he lets me in. That's and then when I'm in Thailand, no one cares. I mean, I'm going on knock air, 
showing them my passport. They're like, whatever, get out of here. Oh, no, here, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Southwest, Southwest of, of, of $20 gets you anywhere you want. Anywhere you want. It is the jam. So we did knock air, had a great time, hung out. But we, um, we spent a couple days in Bangkok. Then we spent a week in Chiang Mai and then a week in Koh Samui. And uh, I loved, I loved Chiang Mai, man. I, I just, I was pulling up some pictures. I'm gonna text you some pictures of, of us in Chiang Mai and the resort we were at. Cause we were, we were probably an hour north of Chiang Mai in the mountains, just chilling in the mountains. My friend, as you know, gorgeous. I got a suit jacket made in a, in a day. Yeah. I should have gotten 10. I, I, I kicked myself going, man, I should have gotten like 10 of these made. Like, every, what colors do you have? I'll take them all. I, purple? I don't care. We'll never so you, know, you know what's funny? So before, before I had actually, actually made the proposal, she's like, why are you getting a tuxedo made? So I already <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, just to have for black tie events. It's going to cost me... Uh, it's going to cost me 200 bucks and it's going to be the best tuxedo ever made. Yeah. I, it's yeah. funny. I have photos too of this guy, like literally standing on a chair to try to reach the back of my neck to try to take my measurements. <laughs> they looked at me. Well, it's funny because I asked them, I was like, I guess all of a sudden I had this whimsical idea. They said, Hey, can I get one of these made in velvet? And the guy looked at me, goes, huh? I go, you have velvet? And the one guy who spoke English went, no, it's Thailand. It's velvet here. Humidity. Yeah. No humidity, velvet. Like, yeah. This is, no, travel's, travel's amazing. I, I don't know how much time we have, but I got to tell my dad's story. Please, uh, yes. Tell your dad's story. We have, listen, I got as much time as you want, brother. I, okay. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about time. I have, one, I, have a, I have a couple more questions for you, but tell your dad's story by all means. So talking now hearing your, your Bangkok story with, with – um, with your issues with your passport, my dad was traveling to come watch me play in the Olympics in Athens, 2004. We were at a pre-tournament in Serbia and I get a call um, to go to my team manager's room at like 3 a.m. I was like, what's going on? I thought something horrible happened. It's like, your dad's on the phone. Dad, are you okay? Are you okay? He's like, yeah, man, everything good. Nobody touched my things. It's like, nobody <laughs> touched your things. What's going on? It's like, oh, your mama and your sister, they should be good they're in Greece now, I think. I was like, well, where are you? Ah, oh, me in Amsterdam. What are you doing in Amsterdam? Um, they don't have the right visa, so they got to figure it out in the morning. So they let, he was traveling on Jamaican visa. My mom and my sisters were traveling, or sorry, Jamaican passport. My mom and my sisters were traveling on a U.S. passport. So you don't need a visa if you're an American citizen and traveling through the EU. My dad, though, long story short, turned into Tom Hanks at the terminal. <laughs> Stop. Five days later, you know, still in the airport, still happy. Me meet so many nice people. There's one couple of them stuck from South Africa, but they're so nice. So we have some friends now. There's some good restaurants here. <laughs> Man, you're in Amsterdam by yourself. He's calling from a payphone every time, right? Oh, shit. Um, and 2004, right? We don't have cell phone access at that time, as, as we do now, obviously. But Sure. There's a, my team manager set up an emergency Olympic visa through the Greek embassy. Um, and all he had to do was go outside of the, to the embassy, but they wouldn't release his passport to leave the terminal. So he ended up flying back to LAX, starting the whole process over again to make it back to the Olympics. 
once he got there, he had water polo tickets for both brackets, A bracket and B bracket. And they're like, there's no way this Jamaican dreadlock Rasta man has sold out Greek water polo Olympic tickets. They have to be counterfeit. They arrest him. Greece. But my dad's like, you have to understand, he's like the most positive person. So he's like, they keep me there till the nighttime. And after everything shut down, they send out these people from the Olympic committee. They scan the tickets. They fill out the all real. So we sell all of them to the policeman. (laughs) (laughs) And he's just, he showed up at world championships in Australia in 2007. We're in Melbourne on the team USA bus. I'm going back, remember? He was a spear fisherman in Jamaica. They didn't go to school. He doesn't read and write. This is the same man that in college showed up at Cal Berkeley at our hotel, where I didn't even know where we were staying in the 90s because he flew with 80 pounds of Jamaican jerk chicken to bring up to our, our team and as carry-on luggage. <laughs> Stop. Went, went to Berkeley. was like, where's the water pole team? I don't know. Like, you know just <laughs> Somewhere. <laughs> yeah. You know, like some administrators, like, you know, a lot of visiting teams stay at the Durant Hotel. And someone's like, hey, your dad's in the lobby. And I thought they were being sarcastic. Just saw another black guy, you know, a dreads or something. Like, sure enough, I go downstairs in the lobby. My dad's sitting there with piping hot jerk chicken he had barbecued and flew up with. (laughs) Dude, your dad's a rock star. Oh, we need him to be on every single diversity and inclusion panel in America, you know. He got pulled over, lived, you know, we came from Jamaica to Manhattan Beach, every single cop, multiple times, to the point within two years, he was friends with everybody, you know? Like that's, he just, he's never jaded on life. And, you know, talking about being a great dad, I am a good dad, but nothing like that where I'm always positive. And this guy that grew up with Bob Marley, they dated two sisters. You know, the first time we met Bob Marley, he's in his house. And my dad wasn't like, what's your mute? You know, can I get tickets or something? He was like, what do you stand for? Really? Oh, well, yeah. Your dad met Bob Marley? Oh, yeah. Wow. Your face now just went. <laughs> I know. Dude, so my, <laughs> I have, I have a deal, my, my, one of my good friends, he runs, um, he is, well, he run the licensing and the marketing for the Marley Foundation. So Marley Coffee. Oh, yeah. My buddy my dad, created my that. My dad's land is just on the other side of the hill from there. Yeah, so my buddy created Marley Coffee. Uh, he created the, uh, the smoke line, the, the cannabis line for the Marley, for Marley, for the Marley family. He, um, he helps run the Marley Foundation in Jamaica. That's awesome. Yeah. So, that, I mean, just like, I mean, once again, really small worlds, but. Well, I mean, those, I mean, still to this day, you know, Rohan, Ziggy, Damien, every, all of them just. That's who I grew up with listening to when they were, when they were little kids. That's awesome. What, um, real quick, as we're here at the, the, the end of the movie, right? They are, um, that does not mean the end of the conversation, just the end of the movie. They're walking the bobsled across. They haven't won, but they've won, right? They're walking the bobsled across. What, what's your walking the bobsled moment? Probably Pan American Games. So the men's U.S. water polo team has never done what the women have done back-to-back now the last two Olympics is win a gold medal. 
Um, the highest he's ever finished is the second silver medal. But for me, my gold medal, which actually qualifies us to compete in the Olympics, has been probably my most prou proudest athletic moment. Mm -hmm. And being there with my best friends that worked for so long, for so hard. I mean, worked so hard for so long with an um. And it's interesting, though, because just in recent months, I'm kind of rethinking parts of that because it was there standing, you know, just winning, qualifying for the Olympics, standing there with my hand on my heart, listening to our national anthem being played. And I wonder about it now if, like, I would still have that same sense of pride. And it's frustrating that our society's – the way our society treats individuals mm -hmm. – has changed one of my proudest moments. So sorry to get deep and dark. No, no, man, that's that's good. That's important. It's important to get deep. It's important to uh, to be real and share things because because uh, people need to need to hear those things. It's it's don't apologize for that in any way, shape, or form. Uh, the, the the one of the um, one of the things I miss most that, uh, that, that that COVID has impacted. Probably the thing I miss the most. It's hugs. Oh, yeah, yeah. You and I are both <laughs> extroverted, touchy people. <laughs> we know. are, man. We are. And, uh, you know, um, what's uh, from competition, what's the thing you miss the most? Um, those, those relationships. You know, I kind of talked about, you know, water pole being a very physical sport, but you also have an extreme bond, right? Like, I have Hungarian brothers you know might be related through ancestry but like who knows but you know we treat each other like brothers you know and the, those were our that was our fiercest competition okay during my during my tenure they won three straight olympic games they won 2000 2004 and 2008 olympics um but thomas marks who's coaching the, Hungary, the men's team now and joel varga you know those are my hungarian brothers and you know i we you know, you're talking about how you travel for work, you fly to LA, and I collect airline points and hotel points, but really I collect friends all across the world because I don't need to stay in a hotel. No matter where I go, I have friends I can stay with um, for graduation. When my sister uh, finished her last season at UCLA, I gave her my airline miles to fly with, but I gave her my Rolodex to connect with. And I mean, the Brazilian team took her in, the Spanish team took her in, you know, Italian teams took her in and she just traveled the world um, hanging out with, you know, my, what's considered competitors, but true friends and brothers. And they took better care of my little sister on the opposite side of the world that made her feel safe and secure and welcome than anybody else probably could have even through like a ambassadorship program. That's awesome. Uh, I have a, I have a good friend. She's got a beautiful home up on top of Mulholland Drive. So two friends, well, my one friend just left LA. So now my one good friend up in LA and got this beautiful home. The walls disappear. They're all glass and they collapse in. Yes, yeah, you I get, love those. Yeah, you get the circular view of all of LA up a mountain. And she's like offended if I get a hotel room. She's like, you have the gate code. You have a key. Stay at the house. And I'm just like, uh, okay. You know, I was like, but it's, you know, it's, that, it's those friends. It's that thing. Um, we took, Have you, you know, seen the movie 21? Yeah. So it's actually about our really good friend, Jeff Ma. What? So when, when Omar was coaching at MIT, he was coaching with Jeff Ma. 
and he, 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 millions. Actually, Google him because he's made he's been more successful outside of Vegas, right? If you watch, remember the app, um, you know, he was Sportstacular, and now he sold to Yahoo Sports. It's now it's called Yahoo Sports. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He made that app. Um, he sold his last company to Twitter. Um, yeah, he's big time and just avant garde smart. But I didn't know that for about two years because. Omar's like, hey, my buddy just coming out to town. Can he stay with you? Yeah, of course. Like, so I'd come home from practice, and there'd be this guy in my house. Um, <laughs> you know, he'd have one of his med school friends. Hey, can he come stay at your house? Like, sure. And I guess he was other guy called Omar's like, your boy Janai really likes unicorns. It's the same house you came to in Huntington. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Barbecue. He's like, what? He's like, what do you mean? He's like, well, he's got unicorns everywhere in his house. He's like, Janai does. He's changed a lot since I, you know, since I left for med school. And then he's like, are you sure? And he said, well, it ended up being he was in the right community, or the right address, but wrong street. But that's how it was. My, my house was just open door. I had, I had 11 guys on the national team living there at one point. Um, my house has just always been open. When the Jamaican junior team qualified for world championships in, in um, Los Angeles, it was actually in Long Beach, the entire team, stayed at my house. I wouldn't even get to stay see them because I was actually competing in, in a senior tournament in Germany that, that week. But the entire team stayed at my house. Um, it's just been, you know, I wasn't even there, but it's just my open door policy. I love it, man. I, you know, it's, it's those things. I, I mean, I remember the barbecues at your house. Uh, those were I remember fun. you making, making pizzas too. Making pizzas and stuff. Yeah, late night. You know, like people are like, I'm hungry. I'm like, I'll cook. <laughs> Janai, what do you got? Let's have some fun. Let's have some fun. Where, Janai, um, as we wrap this up, my friend, uh, you know, people talk about the importance of sports and, and I think they miss it because I think they think the importance of sports is watching it versus uh, maybe participating in it first. How much do you think we could grow if we put a little more effort into not, and I don't, I don't want to mean like taking away from, you know, education in any way, but a little more effort into sport, a little more effort into, and, and I'm not talking about necessarily a physical sport, whether it's water polo or basketball, but the idea of sport, the idea of companionship, you know, and that could be speech and debate, that could be anything. How much more could we grow if we just were better teammates? I think we could grow a lot faster, right? Think about basketball court. Within 20 minutes, you could put five guys on one team, five girls on another team, who cares, it doesn't matter. And all of a sudden, you learn each other's names, you learn each other's physical tendencies, you have to collaborate, you have to share one ball. That's all within 20 minutes. And then yeah. you win, and you kind of refine your things and pick up and you're gonna get ready for the next challenging group. You lose, all of a sudden, now you've bonded and, and defeat. And you're like, okay, well, next time let's switch. You're going to guard him. I'm guard him. You got, you're a good shooter, so you're going to shoot some more, right? Like, I think it accelerates um, that emotional learning curve. So true. Especially so true. with the right guidance. Okay, when you get into organized sports, that's just pickup sports. When you get to organized sports, you have a good coach that truly cares about the program and the athletes and not the X's and the O's of winning, the, then – it, it be, I think it makes even better lasting, a better lasting impact. Well, I got two more questions for you. Uh, one, 
you know, I have a philosophy uh, that my daughter, my relationship with my daughter, it's the only relationship that she, she'll never choose. So I always ask her, how am I doing as a dad? How am I doing? Where am I good? Where am I bad? And she'll tell me. God, I, love, I love it. Like it's, it's an open conversation. It's, it's, it's a kick in the teeth sometimes. Hey, you know what? I mean, I remember one time she told me two years ago, she goes, you know what? I don't like it when you raise your voice. I don't like it. I said, okay, I'll get better. And two months later, she came up to me. I told her to go to bed. She walks up to me and she goes, hey, go, hey, kiddo, you're supposed to be in bed. She wraps her arm around my arm. She goes, hey, I want to tell you something. I go, okay, what's up, kiddo? She goes, you haven't raised your voice. You haven't raised your voice. I really love that. I love your voice. Not when it's raised. Thank you, dad. Gave me a kiss and went to bed. What is, do you have a moment with that? Can you share a moment with that with one of your kids that just kind of changed the way you see them? Jesus, I'm crying. (laughs) Sorry. No, the moment, the moment they're born. Yeah. I never knew I could that feeling of unconditional love and you know you're talking about that's why i really emphasize that that was my you know winning pan american games and standing on the podium with my teammates was my proudest athletic moment yeah at that point in my life that had been my proudest moment and i thought you know fatherhood was like oh that's you know anybody could be a dad or a father that's just because they haven't trained their whole life and gone to olympics nothing touches it no being an involved father parent there's no comparison to anything I personally have ever done in my life. Travel, competition, nothing compares because it's just unconditional. Um, so, yeah, literally the moment they're born. And yeah. I have three kids now, and to this day, I haven't raised my voice with them. I'm only five years in, my, but yet I'm 40, 42 years old, and my dad's never raised his voice with me. That's so, awesome. The, and I rarely, even when I coach, I've coached, you know, at division one varsity programs i don't raise my voice if there's something that needs to be heard i stop talking until everyone is silent i call them to the wall and i let them know right like if you i because i i was always told early on in my career when you're coaching you know imagine someone's filming you on the sidelines and your parents your your parents are watching that so again, it's going leading by example, right? If you're getting all agitated and ex- frustrated and yelling, and, but you expect more from your athletes, no, you're the one that needs to lead by example. You have high expectations for your athletes and you have to lead by example. I love that. I uh, I'd asked a friend of mine, you know, being from Montana, a little religious right, you know, you spare the rod, the kid's gonna go crazy. And I, I said, I'd never spank my daughter. And I had a friend and they got real mad at me. You got to spank your kid. You got to put him in line. Spank him, you got to put him in line. And I said to him, I said, you know, um, I can't imagine a world where I I, I put my hands on my child. And I say, I'm doing this because I love you. And then my daughter's 20, 30, whatever years old. And that man in her life puts his hands on her and says the same thing. And that correlates back to what I did when she was a kid. And I won't do it. Uh, I'll figure out different ways. I'll figure out smarter ways. I'll figure out better ways to not discipline my kid, but understand my kid, to engage my kid, 
to, to make them better, to help them walk down the street that's better. And I don't think that has to be a, a physical thing or to your point of raising the voice thing, right? Um, and I got so much pushback and I just smiled. I mean, I just smile like, great, go ahead. And I, and, you know, and these are these parents that are that are telling this to me that this is the way it works, um, you know. And I don't mean this as a slight against them, but it's like your kids are on drugs, uh, your kids are knocked up and pregnant early, your kids are not in school, um, your kids don't listen to you anyways. So how did that beating work? I'm just curious. How did it work? You know, I, I love your approach, and and the reason I asked is because, and the reason I brought it up is because I. None of us are perfect, but man, we can all be better. You know, we can all be better. And I think, you know, to, to, to um, put a bow on things uh, and to bring it back to, uh, to your let it out moment and then your conversation and everything else is one is to, to what you eloquently said, it's communication. But two, it's what kind of stature do you want? Are you being celebrated for being an asshole? Or are you celebrated for being a good man? And then what, is it, what does a good man look like? Is it a good man in the moment? Or is it generationally a good man? Like the way you talk about your father, that is generationally a good man. That is without a doubt, put him any point in time in history, you plop your dad down and hand him a baby. He's a good man, he's a good father. And I think we should all achieve that. I think we should all go for that. Final question. You have big interviews coming up. You've been a commentator on NBC. You have had interviews all around the world. You've spoken to people everywhere. We've spent a couple, two and a half, three hours together. Two hours, two hours and 10 minutes. How's this rank on your interviews, my friend? Where am I at? The most authentic. <laughs> that is, when you say NBC, that was one time <laughs> and i was so hyped up for it so hyped up like i just finished my playing career i knew everybody on our u.s team we we're playing croatia um and I, I knew the coach i knew a lot of their players i knew how to pronounce their names all the itches um knew everything about it and then as game was at the, actually at the rose bowl up in los angeles and when it came time to actually go live and i had listening to different people in my ear like one person is talking about commercial breaks one person is saying do this and, uh, and then i'm talking to the person next to me is like, like i just my dhd just went on overdrive and i just froze it was it's tough i've man. never been i've never been asked back to go <laughs> to commentate with nbc again <laughs> but listen and i don't live, blame them live commentating is tough one more thing I just, uh, let's close out with this i want to close out uh before my daughter sings about the first time she took a poop by herself <laughs> Not that that's a bad exo, but um, you sent me a video, which just put a smile on my face. <laughs> you replicated the Usain Bolt video. Let's close out with let's close out with a happy story here. How did that happen? What's going so, on? My friend Marlon, who kind of runs the Jamaican water polo team with Lance, he also helps coordinate commercials and music videos back home in Jamaica. So he'd done a lot of stuff with Usain Bolt, including being his body double, um, organizing different shots with, you know, organizing police, you know, security, things like that. So he just finished up his commercial with Puma, 
which is kind of a funny commercial because obviously Usain Bolt, Bolt's probably the fastest delivery person <laughs> you could ever have. Dude, when he, when he walks by the cops, it's hilarious. He's like, yeah, he has to slow down. <laughs> so we really try to reenact it, running down the same streets, going up to the same house, um, having some of the same props that were in the real Usain Bolt video. But you know, obviously it was just me running and delivering a water polo ball. <laughs> Dude, it was awesome. It put a smile on my face. My friend. Tomorrow, uh, and tomorrow I am doing another interview with uh, Sean Paul because he's another water polo player. Three generations, like talking about, you know, that generational parenting. His grandfather played water polo. His dad played water polo was the team manager for years. And now he and his brother play. I love it. I love it. Uh, we will. Our kids will grow up. The avocados will never be ready on time. Uh, bananas will go bad. We will, the sun will rise, the sun will set. You got the avocado tree right there. I love it. But all of that, you know, the one thing we'll never get back is time. And uh, I'm honored you spent this time with me. I miss you, my friend, but I'm more honored you spent the time with me. So thank you for this. And uh, more importantly, thank you for the stuff that you continue to do. Thanks for being a, a great leader. Uh, thanks for being uh, an inspiration to, to so many uh, young men and women around the world. And um, thanks for doing more than you've ever been asked to do. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mr. Jason Jepson. <laughs> it was fun talking during movies. Dude, we laughed. I cried. I we got too. serious. I love it, man. Give your wife, give your kids a big hug. And folks, now is the time that you love the most, where my daughter sings about when she took a poop by herself. So Janai, thank you, sir. I love you, brother. Be good, and we'll talk soon. All right, take care. See you, Jason. Peace.